and bring it in front of me in this building. My name is Sharon Salzberg, and um, I'm one of the co-founders of this center. And I always, uh, this is like our anniversary season, so I always get a little bit nostalgic in these retreats. I'm quite happy to be teaching here during this time of year. We first moved in um, on Valentine's Day in 1976. So uh, there's a lot of reflection that happens uh, at this time in very wonderful ways with a lot of gratitude for the fact that, first of all, we're still here, (laughs) and second of all, that so many people have come and all of you have come today to share in this kind of experience. I'm joined um, in teaching this retreat with Mark Coleman, who just got here practically this instant from California. I grabbed him as soon as he walked in the door and said, what would you like to talk about tonight? And uh, Leela Wheeler, also known as Kate Wheeler, um, sitting on the chair, um, who came from Cambridge. She wrote me the other day and said that she'd hurt her back really, really badly shoveling snow. So I'm quite grateful that she managed to come anyway and will just have to be really creative with Leela's body. <laughs> and she said, maybe I'll do my interviews lying down. And I said, sure, we're all friends here. And that is very much the spirit of our coming together. As you know, the particular theme of the retreat, the flavor of the retreat, is the practice of metta or loving kindness. Those of you who came in the front door um, saw that up above the building, it says metta in big letters. When we first bought the building, it was owned by the Catholic Church. It was a novitiate. That's why the bowling alley and so on. And it was owned by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, which is what it said up above the doorway. So in a very cold day in February of 1976, we got some poor guy to get up on a very tall ladder and said, okay, it says, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, is there some way you can fiddle with those letters and come up with an arrangement that says something about who we are and what we care about and what we want to present to the world. So he got up there and he played with the letters and came up with metta, which is the Pali word, Pali being the language of the original Buddhist texts. It's the Pali word for love or loving kindness is the traditional translation. The literal translation of it is friendship. So it's a practice that is developing the art of friendship, first of all toward ourselves, and and that means not just those parts of ourselves that we are very pleased by, that we like a lot, and that we proudly present to the world, but also those parts of ourselves we're a little bit cut off from, and those parts of ourselves we find frightening or disturbing, we don't like so much. And ultimately developing the art of friendship toward all of life, toward all beings everywhere. And just what that means and what it doesn't mean is really the experiential exploration that we undertake in being here. 
we'll emphasize that practice in these first seven days, but we'll also uh, be using basic tools of mindfulness, learning how to be more present, coming back to the moment, opening to our experience without so much judgment. It's all, it's all kind of woven together in being here. Coming on retreat is, is quite an interesting experience. It's pretty different from how many of us live day to day. And because of that, I often find that the beginning part of the retreat, say the first few days, almost always is the most difficult time. It doesn't matter if you've never meditated before or if you've practiced for 40 years. It's just a big adjustment to slow down, to be quiet, to not have the kind of external stimulation that we usually count on to reassure us that we're alive, you know, that, that something's happening. It's different. So that when I myself sit in retreat, I also find the first, the beginning part, you know, the first few days can be quite an adjustment. Sometimes I think, almost as though there are these two voices inside my mind. One voice says, oh, there's nothing happening here. It must be time to go to sleep. And it doesn't matter if I just slept for 15 hours. I sit down to meditate, gone. Or the other voice which says, oh, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen. And this huge torrent of thinking and planning and creativity just this cascade sweeping me away. That bounce from sleepiness to restlessness and sleepiness to restlessness is very common in the beginning. It's not that it doesn't happen later on, but it tends to just smooth out as our whole being makes this adjustment to more presence, to greater quiet, to more sensitivity. So that the intense waves of sleepiness and restlessness are not a problem. What becomes a problem is believing the thought, oh no, six more days, exactly like this miserable sitting. It's never going to change, as though we knew. And this points to one of the compelling insights of meditation. We come to understand our minds, our reactions, our habits, in a way so that we have some choice. Why believe that thought when it actually doesn't reflect any great truth? How do we know it's not going to change? In fact, more likely, it's going to change a lot. So the process of being here on retreat, it's really very practical. It's not about a theoretical exercise. It's not about comparative religion. It's not about adopting a philosophy or a dogma. It's about coming into a very supportive situation to enhance our own exploration of the truth. It's so rare in our lives that we don't count on the reflection in someone else's eyes to tell us who we are. But to look within, to reconnect, to come back in touch with what we're feeling, what we're thinking... Our perception is the incredible gift of 
this very unusual kind of situation. We see the ways we leave the moment and our minds jump to the past or they jump to the future. We see the ways we can be gentle instead of harsh as we realize we've been distracted, we've, we've lost our way in, in some sense, and we come back, we start over, we begin again. We use the environment as a way of intensifying the incredible opportunity, really, to do our own work, to do our practice. And even though it looks a little severe on the surface, it's really a lot of fun in its own weird kind of way. It's special to be quiet, to give yourself some time. It's revolutionary not to be looking external to ourselves for all of the answers. And it's revolutionary to be learning how to do something wholeheartedly, unstintingly, no holding back, no hesitation, but without the kind of tension and judgment and stress that we often put into an endeavor. So all of that is is part of what's happening. We see a whole range of experiences, and we have a whole range of experiences. Everything is kind of normal you could say. A lot of times people come to a retreat and they think, okay, the first couple of days might be tough, but then I'm going to have the great breakthrough experience. And from then on, it will be all smooth sailing and I'll be completely enlightened. Let's see, how should I describe it to my friends when I get back? Well, enlightenment is kind of like, you know, and then we're just off and running. But the truth is in this kind of practice, these kinds of practices, and this kind of um, tradition, anything can happen and it's okay. Because, and this is the great secret of the meditative process, what happens is much less important than how we are relating to what is happening. How are we approaching it? How are we holding it? Are we forgiving ourselves for what we're feeling? Do we have some compassion? Do we have the ability to begin again when we've gotten incredibly scattered? Are we learning to have more patience, to have more kindness? Those things are very hard to measure in some way. And so if we have the habit of constant, continual evaluation It's hard. So I would invite you for this week or or two weeks, however long you're here, to see if you can loosen the grip of that constant self-judgment. It may come, no doubt, but we don't have to buy into it. And more have kind of a spirit of adventure, of exploration. I often think it's funny in our culture, you know, we think of adventure as something very externalized and kind of rugged, like climbing a mountain or jumping out of an airplane or something like that. And 
We so rarely think about an inner adventure, about exploring terrains within that we're not necessarily accustomed to, really opening to a different way of being. It's like an adventure. And so that's the spirit with which we undertake the meditation practice. There's really nothing else to do here but go on this journey. And those of you who haven't been here before will soon discover that. There's nothing else to do here. It's really not that kind of place. <laughs> and so the journey becomes everything with its ups and its downs and you know the ways we find it quite amusing and the ways we find it quite trying. But it's all about our own learning in that way. I thought of um, a story about my friend Krishnadas, whom I know some of you know quite well, um, that kind of informed my sense of beginning this retreat. He and I and a number of friends had gone to Toronto last spring to see the Dalai Lama, uh, who was doing an 11-day teaching and ritual. Uh, actually, Lila was there for some of that too, um, called the Kala Chakra. And in the morning, the Dalai Lama would be doing his own practice up on the stage. And so if you were there and doing your practice, it was fantastic. It was like sitting with the Dalai Lama. And then in the afternoon, he would teach or he would um, do some of the ritual. So um, there are actually two stories from that time. Uh, so Krishnadas and I were sitting next to each other on... Uh, these horrible folded rented chairs that they had gotten to fill this exhibition hall. And they were really cramped, and it was the kind of experience where, like, if the person to your right moved to the left, everyone had to move to the left, you know, from that point on, because we were just packed in so tight together, and they're horribly uncomfortable. Krishnas was sitting on the aisle, and I was sitting right next to him, and day after day we just sat there, kind of squished in together, and then one day he tapped me on the shoulder and I looked over at him and he had unhooked his chair from mine and he was like moved into the aisle and he was kind of sprawling, perfectly comfortable. And he said to me, unhook your chair. And I thought, oh my God, I can unhook my chair. So I turned to the person on the other side of me and I grabbed my chair and I unhooked my chair and she saw what I was doing and she unhooked her chair from the other side and uh, we had this incredibly radical thing going on as everybody broke free of, of one another in that way. And I thought about hour after hour sitting there all scrunched and uncomfortable and how it took somebody kind of waking up and saying, things don't have to be this way. Unhook your chair. Sometimes what we need in order to do that is even the awareness of how uncomfortable we are. And that awareness becomes the motivating force for making a change. So in that light, everything we see is useful. It's not wrong, it's not bad, you can't fail at this. It's really, everything is a part of this process of learning and understanding, seeing where we're caught, remembering we can unhook, moving further into a terrain of kindness, perhaps, than 
we have before. That's our adventure. So please use this time. You know, don't see it as kind of burdensome or, or dreary or grim, but, but as that process of more clear seeing, greater kindness toward yourself, which will be the basis for kindness toward others, and the, the kind of special joy that comes from having a very deep exploration. And then, because I'll probably forget, I'll tell you the other story and then turn this over to Mark and Leela. Um, this story is, is from that time in Toronto, and it kind of exemplifies uh, something about the sense of metta, of loving kindness, which I'll talk much more about tomorrow, and all of us will talk about in the coming days. So when the Dalai Lama would come back on the stage in the afternoon, <clears throat> he liked to begin the afternoon with having people from different Buddhist traditions come up on stage with him, often they were sitting there anyway as monastics, and chant, do, do the kinds of traditional chants from their own particular lineage or school. And so he would do it almost um, chronologically in the order in which Buddhism spread around the globe. And that meant the Theravada school of Buddhism, which is the school that uh, this center was founded in, this kind of Buddhist teaching found in Southeast Asia, countries um, like Burma, Thailand, and so on, came first. It's the school of the elders. And then he would, somebody from uh, you know, China and Tibet and Japan, and, and that's how it went. So there were, uh, the first day that he asked for that, there was a monk and a nun, both Westerners, from the Theravada tradition. And they led the chanting. And then, you know, they went on. But the next day, for some reason, the monk couldn't be there. So it was just this nun all by herself. And there she was in front of 7,000 people with the Dalai Lama sitting right behind her on, on his throne, having to chant, when, which in effect is like singing all by herself. And she did it all wrong. You know, her little quivery voice was shaking and because I know the chants, some of which we'll do here. Um, you know, the things you're supposed to say three times, she said once, and the things, you know, she got, she was, it was all wrong. Um, and then it was finally over, you know, and he went on, other countries got represented. And then at the end, he said, I want to thank all of the people who were chanting, especially that nun who had to chant all by herself. He said, it's not an easy thing to do. And then the Dalai Lama went on to say, I had to do that once. He said, I went to Japan, and they asked me to chant the Heart Sutra, which is a very fundamental um, Buddhist text. He said, and I had to do it all alone, and I made so many mistakes. He said, I think it was like I made up a whole new Heart Sutra. (laughs) So I have many Dalai Lama stories as he is my greatest symbol of compassion, or one of my greatest symbols of compassion, but that's my new favorite. Um, because then the nun, whom I happen to know, 
uh, came up to me later on in the audience in the afternoon, and she was radiant. It's like the light that was pouring out of her was so incredible. He had given her such a tremendous gift um, in that kind of acknowledgement and that tenderness. It was really beautiful. And then she said to me, do you want to sing with me tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I really don't. But as we explore the, the sense of metta, it is very much in that way. It's taking the time. It's acknowledging somebody who tried. It's being humble about your own vulnerabilities so that there's a sense of sharing or joining rather than a sense of separation. So the key word is inclusivity. As we look within, we include more and more of our own experiences in a field of awareness, mindfulness, loving-kindness. And as we do the active practice of metta, we include more and more beings in, in that same field of awareness and love. So now I'll turn um, the evening over to Mark, who will uh, formally begin the retreat. No, you're going to sing. That was a setup. <laughs> you are going to sing. <laughs> so, good evening. Nice to be here with you in the snow. We don't have this white stuff where I come from in California. Lovely to be back here. I'm teaching with Sharon and Leela. Before I talk, I'm going to talk a little about the refuges and precepts. Before I do that, I just, uh, given that this is a meta retreat, something struck me when I was getting a ride here just before um, arriving a few minutes ago. Um, I was in the car, and you go through a few different toll plazas to get from Boston to here. And I, I hear in California that, you know, about the, the sort of certain, certain reputation of East Coast people being somewhat cooler. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of like, okay, is this really true? And so the only, my only contact when I, when I was here, aside from the person who picked me up, was going through these toll plazas. And every person that we checked in with, paid money, they said with a big smile, have a great day, you know, have a great weekend. You know, drive safe, hope you have, you know, whatever, I forget all the different things that they said, but it was like, we got these different shots of meta every time we went through a toll booth. And it just struck me the power, the power of the, of the power of love in its simplest form, which is just to wish somebody well, just to be warm and pleasant and connecting. And I felt really buoyed up and gladdened each time we went through a toll booth. I was looking forward to the next one. And the, the last one we went through, I, did, I was kind of snoozing, so I didn't see the person, but I could feel that sense of goodwill in their voice. And I, it just struck me how powerful that is. So whenever you feel like you might get lost this retreat, just remember that the, the practice of matter of love, of connection, is very, very simple. And the smallest acts of love are really uh, quite profound. So... I'll say a little about the refuges. 
the refuges um, are really kind of the container for re- the retreat and also for practice in general. And when I think about the refuges, I think about um, where this traditions come from, that this tradition has been uh, practiced for the probably last 2,600 years. And in all of those Buddhist countries, um, people take refuge in what's known as the Three Jewels. Take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. They become like the reference point for and the orientation of one's life. So I'm just going to say a little about what that means to take refuge. And it's always interesting to reflect on the fact that we're always taking refuge in something. In our lives, what we do in our lives is an expression of what we've consciously or unconsciously taken refuge in. And as you know, our culture takes refuge in things that may be quite different than we're practicing here. We're living in a culture of consumerism and materialism, and that's really what a lot of the refuge is. Here, we're taking refuge in the Buddha. Buddha means to be awake. So we're really taking refuge in the core of our being, uh, in the core of our practice. We're taking refuge in the possibility of awakening. We're taking refuge in our awakened nature itself, our awakened heart. The Buddha was a human being just like us who went from suffering through his own practice and diligence to understand his true nature, to wake up, to be free. So the idea of going for refuge to the Buddha is to not only go to refuge in the historical Buddha, that he was an example of that possibility, but to really go for refuge to that truth within us, that awakened nature within us, that it's possible right here and now to understand the beauty and the love and the depth uh, of our nature. When we orient ourselves in that way, when we kind of have a sense or look at ourselves with that sense of depth, when we acknowledge the depth of our being, we begin to naturally take refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is the second of the jewels. The Dharma means the truth. It means the way things are. So on a retreat, in meditation, in our lives, we're learning how to take refuge in the truth of what is. Most of the time, we're fighting against what's true, what's happening. We're resisting, we're struggling, we're wanting something else, something better, something more interesting. What would it be like to take refuge in the way things are, as they are right now? Just simply be with this moment with a loving, wakeful presence. And when we bring that quality of presence to the way things are, we begin to see things more clearly. When we, when we can let go of the resistance and struggle with reality, we can actually begin to see what's true, what's true in ourselves, what's true in in the nature of things, in the way things are, the laws that we have to live by in this, in this world. The Dharma also means the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of liberation. And these teachings and practices that the Buddha taught, he only taught them for one reason, 
which was to allow us to see where we're deluded, to allow us to wake up, to see where we're creating our own suffering. The teachings, that uh, the practices lead from unwholesome, unskillful states of being to wholesome, skillful states of mind and heart. That's the trajectory of the practice. And I always love the, the, one of the lines from the suttas where he says, um, where he's encouraging people to cultivate wholesome states of mind like loving kindness, awareness, and let go of unwholesome states of mind. And he says, if I didn't think it was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. If I didn't think awakening was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do these practices. So we have refuge in the Buddha, in awakening. We have refuge in Dharma, in the truth, the way things are, the teachings and practices that lead to liberation and awakened heart. And we have refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is the spiritual community. Is the, traditionally, it's the community of enlightened teachers through the ages handed down these teachings of wisdom and compassion. But it, in the context of this retreat, going for refuge to the Sangha is going for refuge to the spiritual community that we're creating here by practicing together. And for me, Sangha, the, the longer that I practice, the more the richness and the profundity of the jewel of Sangha becomes. If we said to you, go back home and practice metta for a week on your own, how much metta practice would you do? You'd probably do a little in the morning and go get a cup of tea and maybe check your email and call a few friends and maybe sit again. And There's something very powerful about sitting with people, about sitting with people, being with people with a shared intention. Everybody here has a wholesome intention to practice, to practice loving kindness. Whether you know them, whether you don't know them, whether you like them or don't like them, we all have so much in common, so much that connects us. And we're so used to looking for that which is divisive, that which is separating. But there's so much more that unifies us here and I encourage you to remember that we're just all in this together. We're all, as that Zen saying goes, we're just stumbling from one accident to another. We're trying our best to navigate through this life, to be conscious, to be wakeful, to be kind. And we, we support each other, particularly with the silence, with our silence, with our commitment to the silence and commitment to practice. So we create a field of uh, loving-kindness, a field of wakefulness. So taking refuge in the Sangha. The second container that we create on retreats uh, which also is a fundamental part of Buddhist practice, 
is the taking of the five precepts, the five ethical guidelines. And these guidelines or principles of wise living arise out of the understanding of our profound interconnectedness. That when we really understand how connected we are, we act much more wisely, kindly, with care, with love. It's said that an awakened person would live naturally following these guidelines. Not following them, but it would be an expression of their understanding, of their awakening, of their understanding of interconnectedness. And these, these guidelines, when we commit to them in this retreat form, is a way of supporting the sense of community, the sense of, sense of safety, sense of uh, protectedness. And really they are encapsulated by the first guideline, which is to refrain from killing or harming any life form. To refrain from harming any being in any way. And if you imagine if everybody in this world committed to doing that, just for a day, maybe a week, there'd be no wars, there'd be no oppression, there'd be no violence, no exploitation. That'd be a pretty amazing place to live. So we create a sort of mini form of that in the retreat by committing to non-harming, not killing, not taking a life of a little bug that might have entered your room, a mosquito lingering from the summer, or a cockroach. They're still here. They certainly used to be. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not here anymore. <laughs> not here anymore. I used to think that co- those cockroaches had the greatest karma because they you know, get born into this place where everyone's walking really slowly, everyone's sending them love and compassion and... They were happy cockroaches, and they got fed too in the kitchen. But we don't have them anymore. That's the official line. <laughs> Anyhow, if they are, same mark. <laughs> same. <laughs> so the second ethical guideline <laughs> is to refrain from taking that which isn't freely given. To, to refrain from stealing. And I don't imagine anybody here came with any grand plans to, you know, come away with more stuff <laughs> than they arrived. <laughs> A few new extra Zafus or you know, good winter coat. Cockroaches, you know. So... <laughs> And again, this is just an expression of uh, desire to create a field of, of blamelessness and, and non-harming. You know, when we, the reason the Buddha taught ethical, ethical ethics and morality in general it was because, and he always taught those teachings first, was because when we act purely and ethically without harming, it creates a, it creates a sense of well-being, a sense of uh, goodness, and a sense of ease in our mind and heart. If we, act, if we act unkindly, if we 
um, a harsh, we speak harshly to somebody, um, or we do something that we know that's unskillful and hurtful, it stays with us. It creates agitation in the mind and the heart. We have remorse, guilt, shame, regret. So the more we act ethically, the more we create a sense of well-being, which is a support for meditation and wisdom. So refraining from taking that which isn't given, respecting people's property, um, respecting people's zafus, and um, respecting the resources that we're given here. The third ethical guideline is to refrain from any sexual activity that causes harm. In the context of the retreat, it's refraining from all sexual activity. Not because there's anything wrong with sexual activity, but more because in the retreat context, we're redirecting our energy, our attention, towards our inner life. And the field of sexuality being such a strong uh, field uh, that's so enticing to the mind and heart, uh, it really supports practice just to let it go, or to let it go as, as much as you can. We're practicing a sense of contentment with how things are. So restraining from any sexual activity. The fourth guideline is refraining from engaging in any kind of wrong speech, untruthful speech, harsh, harsh speech. In the context of the retreat, it's, it's, uh, we're, cult- we're taking the precept of noble silence. Noble silence, as it implies, is um, committing to uh, practicing for the whole of this week in silence. It also means cultivating an inner silence. You know, usually the most noisy stuff that's going on is not the chatter in our conversation, but the chatter in our minds. So we're also committing to uh, cultivating a field in our minds of quiet, of calm, of stillness. And the silence, as you'll find it, especially if you're new to retreat, is a really wonderful support for practice. Sometimes in the beginning it feels intimidating. Sometimes it brings up fear and anxiety, like how the hell am I going to get through a whole week without chatting to anybody and using my cell phone? And and usually by the end of the retreat, it's the thing that people have most valued. It's such a relief to let go of conversation and chit-chat and just to relax into your being, into who you are, without that social pressure. And sometimes it can feel awkward when you're around people in the dining room or uh, if you're sharing a room. Um, and again, it just it, it, it takes a little getting used to if it's unfamiliar. Um, I just encourage you to, um, I invite you to really drop into the silence. The silence is such a profound doorway to the depths of our being, to the depths of truth. And lastly, the fifth precept is to refrain from any intoxicants that cause heedlessness. As you know, when we consume alcohol and take certain kind of drugs, 
it clouds the mind. And when our mind's cloudy and dull, we're more likely to cause harm. And since we're practicing wakefulness and compassion and loving-kindness, using intoxicants in those ways is just counterproductive to our practice. That doesn't mean um, medication. If you're taking medication, please continue to take your medication for whatever you need that for. Just a brief word about the um, silence. There will be times where we'll have interviews and group interviews. Um, And if you do need to speak to somebody, if it's on a practical note, please see the managers. If there's something urgent that you need to talk to us about, you can write us a note or come up to us directly. So I'm going to read through the, more formally, the refuges and the precepts And I'm just going to invite you to reflect on them for yourselves so we formally take them together in the silence. And traditionally, as I'll do them tonight, I'll read them in English. I won't be singing them in Pali. Not tonight, anyway. (laughs) Too much pressure. (laughs) (laughs) They're, They're traditionally... Uh, spoken three times, so I will uh, read them three times. I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. For the second time, I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. For the third time, I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. And I'll read the five precepts. I undertake the training to refrain from killing and harming any living being. I undertake the training to refrain from stealing. I undertake the training to abstain from sexual activity. I undertake the training to practice noble silence. And I undertake the training to abstain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness. been sitting down for a little while, so we're going to meditate now after this. So if anyone would like to stand up and stretch your legs and stuff to be able to spend another 10 or 15 minutes, that would be good. And I'll figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> you can sit there and do that. Yeah. Um, so the balance.
Yes, you can hear. Okay, yeah. Well, you'll um, doubtless hear us repeat what each other says, and since the Dharma is a Dharma of true simplicity, um, hearing the same thing over and over is actually good. But the Buddha said um, that if you search the entire universe in all the ten directions, you'll find no one more deserving of loving-kindness than yourself. And in, in accordance with that instruction... Let's allow ourselves to come home to ourselves as we are, who we are. Just in this moment, appreciating everything it took for each of us to get here. Maybe acknowledging the help that we needed to get free from our obligations, people who may be filling in for us. this place, this time, this center where so many thousands of people have tried to develop the wholesome and beautiful potential of human life. So we're so lucky to be here. And with that, gradually allowing the sensations of your body, your physical presence, to express themselves, to be experienced. softness and clarity. Just feeling your body on the cushion. Should there be an area of tension that you notice you can just let go of, then let go of it. And as a way of connecting with ourselves, we'll begin the retreat with a period of paying attention to the breathing, the sensations of the breathing process. Something so basic. It's one of the objects of, or one of the metta practices is to send love to all breathing beings. 
among those we are one. You may feel the coolness of the breathing at the nose. Warmth on exhalation, a rhythm somewhere in the body, the belly, the chest. Just encourage your mind to connect and relax into just paying attention to this feeling. There's no need to do anything about the way your breath is. Anything else can drop away. This one simple task of being present. So it's simply feeling the breath. It's not work. The mind will want to wander off. That's actually good. Then you see what your mind is like. Gently, just encourage or incline yourself to become present again with the breathing. that spirit of friendship with the experience. However it may be, the breath may be long or short, the mind may be calm or restless. How can you be with just being here, just being you, breathing?
as you soften into the breath more and more. Just reminding yourself it doesn't need to be worked on. Even your capacity to be aware of it is something natural to you. And one more minute of the sitting. See if you can come in just a little closer, feeling it more delicately, more fully. When you hear the bell, listen to the sound of the bell and then open your eyes gently. As you go to your well-deserved rest. Um, Try to stay close with yourself and staying in the moment with each experience that you're having. If you want to be aware of breathing or simply just kind of being um, in the same place as your body as you walk through the walking rooms and finding your shoes and very present here in this place, maybe as if it were the only place on earth 
It's certainly the only place on earth that any of us is. It's kind of interesting. So thank you, everyone, and have a great retreat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.